in, in my house, one of the things that, that we do sometimes, and, and if you're a parent and you can relate, then, then you know that, that it's just normal, is that there are times when the kids just need a little downtime, and sometimes a movie is the only thing that will kind of give them a little bit of downtime. One of the movies that we've got on DVR that we have recorded uh, is the movie called Tangled. Now, if you know the movie Tangled or not, you may have to be the parent of a smaller child to know the movie Tangled or maybe a grandparent of some young children. But Tangled is the story of Rapunzel. And uh, it's told in such a way that at the beginning of the story, from the sun comes a sun drop that hits the earth and then grows a magic golden flower. And there's a lady who finds this golden flower, Mother Gothel, and she keeps it all to herself and keeps herself young for hundreds and hundreds of years. No one else knows that it's there or exactly where it is, and it's sort of legendary. And, and then one day they have a need for it because the queen, who's pregnant with a child, gets really sick. And so they go searching all over the kingdom for this magic golden flower to heal the queen. And what happens is they dig it up after they find it, bring it to the queen, they put it in a bowl of water, she drinks it, and she's healed, and the baby is born with the same magical qualities that the flower had, except now it's in her hair. And Rapunzel has magic hair. And so anytime that you sing a certain song, her hair starts to glow, and whatever was broken or needed to be healed was healed and restored. Well, not to be uh, outdone and not to be uh, getting old, uh, Mother Gothel figures out what's going on. She sneaks into the castle, determines that the only way that she can have her youth forever is to steal the child, Rapunzel. And so she takes Rapunzel as a very young infant to a tower where no one can find her and raises Rapunzel as her own little girl. And over the years, she sings the song, and Rapunzel's hair glows, and Mother Gothel stays very young-looking throughout the entire movie. Rapunzel grows up, and she has no idea that Mother Gothel is not her real mother. She doesn't know what's happened, because she was so young when she was told all these lies and made to believe this deception. The story goes on that, that Rapunzel has this dream of seeing certain, what she thinks are, are floating lights. They're actually lanterns that are lit on her birthday every year, hoping that one day she'll return. The king and queen light a lantern, floated into the sky, and all the kingdom does likewise, and so we have what looks like a bunch of stars. Rapunzel from her tower sees them float over and has this dream that she'll be able to see them in person one day. So on her 18th birthday, she escapes, and she leaves her tower, and finds a, a rogue young man who eventually leads her to see the lanterns. Through a course of events, it becomes apparent to her that, that there's something a little bit off and she can't quite figure it out until Mother Gothel shows back up on the scene and convinces her that Flynn Rider, her rescuer, is actually an evil guy who cares only about the crown that Rapunzel has in her possession. And so she's taken back to the tower eventually, believing these lies again. And then through a course of events, as she lays there in her room, she remembers back and thinks through all the events, and it becomes apparent to her that it wasn't Flynn Ryder who was lying the whole time. It's the woman that she thought was her mother, the Gothel. And eventually, at the end of the story, she approaches her mother, and she says, you're the one who's been lying to me the whole time. It was all you. And Rapunzel at that point becomes determined to do anything she can to escape the captivity. 
get to get away from this supposed mother. It's interesting to me in the story that Rapunzel had once been blindly happy in that system. She had once just lived in that system knowing no better, it seemed, and was okay with it. Even to return back to it, knowing it was captivity, knowing that she couldn't leave that tower. But there was a glimpse for her in the middle of the movie, an exposure to what life could really be about. There was... There was a, a taste of freedom that began to stir her spirit, that began to stir her mind, and she had she wanted more of that. Finally, at the end of the movie, she understands the absurdity and the abuse of living in that tower, not being free. And she becomes determined to escape, and eventually at the end of the story, she's able to do that. I really believe that, that in many ways... Several of us here can relate to Rapunzel. Now, I certainly cannot relate to Rapunzel's hair. Seventy feet of glowing, golden blonde hair. Mine never got to 70 feet. And it sure couldn't get there now. I can't relate to Rapunzel. And those of you in the Bald Brotherhood, thank you for showing up this morning. I appreciate that. I see some 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 sympathetic domes out there. Thank you so much. Now, I can't relate to Rapunzel on her hair. But I tell you what, there are some today who, just like Rapunzel, you need to be set free. You, you may not even know that you need to be set free. You may be living blindly happy in a in a religious system that you need to be set free from this morning. Now, some of you know that you are in chains this morning, chains to sin, and you seemingly can't break free of it. Some of you know that you're in chains and bondage to a religious system that's just about rules and it's killing you. Some, I really believe, also need to have some confusion this morning on what truly Christianity is all about. So my prayer this week and this morning has been for you, for freedom, for clarity, for new life. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 18 to 28 this morning as we continue our series called To Be Continued. Next week, actually, we will wrap up this particular portion of To Be Continued, and eventually we'll continue the series. Mark, if you're just joining us, Mark is a gospel that moves very quickly. He doesn't waste a lot of time telling the story of Jesus about his earthly ministry, about his death, and about his resurrection. And he sort of ends the story in such a way that you realize it's not over. He just ends it abruptly in chapter 16, and, and you, you realize it's to be continued. Now, Mark didn't write anything else that was the conclusion of the story. It's to be continued in the lives of believers and in the life of the church. And so that's why we've entitled uh, this particular series, To Be Continued, and why we're handling it the way we are. So look with me in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, talking about Jesus, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and, the, and a worse tear is made. 
and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of by far the high priest and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions? He told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I want to try to explain a little bit of what's going on here and then give you some observations that I believe Jesus is teaching through this particular passage and then sum everything up in the one main point, take-home truth, that if you remember this and live it out, I think life will be different. Let's look at what's really going on here. There there are two different scenes, essentially, in, in the passage that we're using this morning. The first scene is a question about fasting. Uh, Fasting had become a mandatory thing, according to the Pharisees. Uh, They fasted, in fact, on two different days of the week. And certain days that they fasted was mandatory. To fast, of course, is to not eat food for a particular uh, period of time. And so they would fast on certain days. And it had become, throughout Judaism, a mandatory thing. Now, there was only one mandatory day mandated by the Old Testament for fasting. It was on the Day of Atonement. Uh, But the Pharisees had added a little bit. They had included a few extra days. It was to be a display of piety and humility before the Lord. All the rabbis and the rabbis' disciples would participate in this. So the natural question then in verse 18 is, Jesus, if you are a rabbi, and if all of the other rabbis' disciples and rabbis participate in fasting, Jesus, verse 18, why not you? Now, some would look at this and say it's a very, you know, accusatory question. Others would say, well, I'm just, I want to know. This is not asked by the Pharisees, but by the people who are there. So we're not sure exactly the nature of their questioning, but it's posed to Jesus. If all these other guys fast, if you're a rabbi and you have disciples and it's customary for them to fast as well, why are you not doing this? The response of Jesus uh, is not a a theological explanation of the nature of fasting and when you should do it and why you should do it and when you should not do it and so on. He answers and he says in verse 19, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? Interesting question. Basically what he tells them is you don't fast at a wedding. You've been to a wedding where where the spread is incredible? You've been there? Those are the man, those are those are the, the weddings that you just sit and hang out for a while, don't you? Go back for seconds and thirds, you don't pay anything at all for it. It's great. Now if you provided all this bread, if you've ever had to do that, you think, oh you know, I didn't pay anything for it. You agree, I'm going to everybody's wedding now to get paid back, you know. But but you know, you at a wedding, would it not be outrageous and would it not be weird for someone to show up and to eat nothing? To almost act as if they're at a funeral, at a wedding. Getting at times of a funeral, it's sad. Maybe you don't feel like eating if someone close to you has died. Jesus is drawing the, the contrast here to say, you know, yeah, yeah, at a funeral, yeah, you might fast. But the groom is here, he says. It's time to feast. It's time to celebrate. Jesus answers their question, why are you not fasting? He says, because we're throwing a party. Because I'm here. Because it's time to celebrate, to enjoy the presence of the groom, to enjoy the feast. He says they will fast one day, but only when I'm gone. He goes further. 
when he says in verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, he's using terminology and imagery there that we don't think of. We don't have in our 21st century America uh, patches for clothes very much anymore. Some of you remember sewing a patch on the clothes. You say, well, you know, I still do that. That's okay if you want to. That's fine. Most of the time now it's cool to have the holes there. I'm not sure exactly why. When I was a youth pastor, I I used to come up to teenagers and I'd look at them and they got holes everywhere. I said, do you know you have holes in your pants? Yeah. I said, did did you pay full price for that? Yeah. Hey, you know, they, left, they left stuff out. You got ripped off. You know, it's cool now to have have holes there. But but it used to. They they would have to make sure that a patch would match the cloth so that it would not expand or contract and tear apart, which makes perfect sense. They used to hold wine in what were called wine skins. Now, over time, as the wine fermented, it would expand and push out the wine skins just a little bit. And eventually, when you remove the wine, a little bit of dry rot starts to set in. And if you put fresh wine in there and it expands it again, what's going to happen? It's going to explode. It's going to break. Jesus is saying, look, I'm making everything new. He's using imagery to draw back to what he is about. He's telling them that this old system that you've been used to, this old system of Judaism is now completely fulfilled and its time is gone and now I'm here. He says, so you can't put me into that old system. I fulfilled that old system. We've got to turn the page on that, and now it's about Jesus Christ. He's telling them it's time to retire the old wineskins. Time to put them away and enjoy the new wine, Jesus Christ, in a container that will hold it, in a mindset that will fit Jesus Christ. So that's what's kind of going on there with that first scene. Now, the second scene is a question about the Sabbath. I don't know if you're a person who fasts much. Maybe you can't relate to that first scene, but we all know certain regulations that have been uh, put out there about what the Sabbath ought to be about. The disciples are walking along in verse 23, and they're going through the grain fields, and they're picking some heads of grain. Now, in order to eat them, they would have to kind of rub them between their hands a little bit and and get what out of them they could eat. And so the, the Pharisees, look at verse 24, the Pharisees said to him, look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? It's interesting that the Pharisees are right there. They just happen to be hanging out in the grain field that day, I suppose. Just there they are with a lawn chair, you know, a hat, just catching some sun, just out in the grain field. I don't think that's exactly what they were doing. You picture the, the Pharisees here almost as private investigators. Sort of shady figures to some degree. Here they are sneaking around a little bit, you know, and then Jesus turns and they just they kind of stand behind one of the, you know, stalks of grain and then they sneak around a little bit more on it. And then, ha-ha, we got you. They're the whistleblowers in this story. They say, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful? And the original commandment by God was to keep the Sabbath holy by not working on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees, during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, didn't feel that that was specific enough. They said, I'm not sure exactly what that means. So let me explain it to you, they say. And they added 39 of their own regulations to be sure that they and no one else had any opportunity to break the law of the Sabbath by doing anything remotely considered work. And it's possible here that they believe they've caught Jesus on two infractions of their 39. One was walking more than a certain distance in one day on the Sabbath. 
The other was reaping the grain. They believe they've caught Jesus in at least two different things. The disciples here are walking too far, and they're reaping the grain by tearing it off, crushing in their hands, and eating it. So they ask, why, Jesus? Do you guys break the rules? I love the response. Jesus, again, he's so incredibly smart, obviously. He said it in verse 25, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and, and hungry? And he goes on to explain a, a situation from the Old Testament where David, at a moment of need on the Sabbath, walks in and gets some bread off of the altar, which was reserved, it says, for the high priest alone. Not only does David eat it, but he gives some to his companions. So he shows them, first of all, there's a biblical precedent for what I'm doing. There's a not only a biblical precedent, but look, David did this. You think highly of him. It's okay that they have done this because they're hungry and they're in need and they're on a specific mission from God anyway, so this is allowable. He goes further. He reminds them in verse 26, verse 27 rather. He told them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Not only does he tell them, look, they haven't done anything wrong, but he goes a step further and says, guys, you don't get it anyway. You've forgotten that the Sabbath is meant for your benefit, not your enslavement. And that was something that the Pharisees would have taught anyway. It's a little hypocritical in the way that they operated, but they would have taught that, yes, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Then he goes on in verse 28, verse 11 of Jesus' pokes and prods here. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's putting himself on par with God, which, of course, he is. The Pharisees don't believe that, and so he's saying, look, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. What I say goes, not you. It's interesting how he does that. That's kind of what's happening in those two scenes. I want to give you three observations, sort of teaching points, if you will, principles that sort of undergird this story that I believe Jesus is trying to get across, both to the Pharisees, to his disciples, and then obviously through the ages down to us. What is Jesus, what is being taught uh, through Jesus in this particular passage and story? First thing is that religious acts do not earn God's favor and blessing. Religious acts do not earn God's favor and blessing. The Pharisees had pretty strict views on fasting and on keeping the Sabbath. Mandatory fasting, as I said, was a very important part of their piety and their devotion to the Lord. Uh, Some came to believe that by fasting they could prompt the mercy of God and get Him to forgive their sins. If they could only fast at the right time, for the right length of time, in a certain manner, and so on, then they could have their sins forgiven by God. Uh, Some fasted to try and cast out demons. They believed that you had to be pure and clean and all that stuff. We would fast in order to do that. Uh, Certainly fasting is a way to humble yourself before God. But Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 6 that many people have fallen into the trap of making fasting not about humility before God, but about impressing other people. Maybe you remember the passage where Jesus says they contort their faces and they make themselves, uh, their appearance to be something as if, draw some attention to me, look how hard it is for me to fast. So that people would notice and they would get attention. 
unfortunately, that's the way that fasting had devolved during this time. Now, their view of the Sabbath uh, started with the fact that God had made the Sabbath sacred in creation. You know, he rested on the seventh day. There's nothing wrong with the Sabbath in its principle. The Old Testament tells us that also the Sabbath, along with circumcision, was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. There were two main things that they could show to other people that we are the people of God. One was circumcision, one was the Sabbath. So it's an important deal. The Pharisees placed the most stress on any of their regulations on the Sabbath. If you read what they had a problem with with Jesus, it's what he did on the Sabbath. It's interesting, and Mark shows us that. They, they, they let this become the heart of the law for them. This is what their obsession was. I don't know if you've got something you're obsessed about. The Pharisees were obsessed about keeping the Sabbath and making sure everyone did. They felt, as I mentioned before, that the general command about keeping the Sabbath holy by not working was not specific enough, and they needed to add some stuff to it. They thought it was vague. To avoid any possibility whatsoever of breaking the Sabbath, they added, like I said, 39 regulations. Let me tell you what some of those were. You can only help someone, according to the Pharisees, on the Sabbath if they are under the threat of dying. So, Don, you break your leg, out of luck. Can't help you. Now, you got something else going on, my friend, in your life, I'll be there for you. But if you break your leg, don't call me. Right, that's on the, on the Sabbath. Now, any other day of the week, fine. Yeah, I'll come on over. You can't help someone unless they're in danger of dying. You can only tie a knot that could be untied with one hand. I'm not real good at tying knots anyway. All my knots would probably be okay. But, but you can only tie a knot that could be untied with one hand. Because using both hands would, of course, be really laborious. And it would be work. You could not carry children. You know, I don't mind that about the Sabbath sometimes, quite honestly, because they just, you know, sorry, kids. It's a Sabbath, God said, you know, I can't hang on me today, you know. You couldn't carry children. You could not help with the birth of an animal. On your own. Good luck. You just pray that that animal doesn't go into labor on the Sabbath, because you can't do anything about it. You can only sew one stitch of a garment. I guess if, if the, the tear is only one stitch, you're okay. Say, boy, you need to wear that on the Sabbath, and you can only sew one stitch. You're going like the teenager, just the holy jeans. You know, you're going. That's the way it is. You you could only write one letter. Not a letter as if the whole page, but one letter. Better make that a good one. You know, pick your favorite letter and write it. That's all you can do on the Sabbath. You may not set a dislocated foot or hand. Again, even if it's just dislocated, I can't help you. You can't set it. You may not repair a fallen roof. You can prop it up for a short period of time. That's all you can do on the Sabbath. If a building fell on the Sabbath, you could remove enough rubble to find out if the people who it fell on were dead or alive. If they're alive, you can help them. If they're dead, you leave them until the Sabbath's over. Now, those were the regulations of the Pharisees. They had come to believe that a person, through some religious act, could earn God's favor and blessing. 
They thought that for what you do, fasting, look how, how incredibly holy I am. I'm going to show God just how great I am by this fasting that I'll do. They thought by what you avoid. Look, I'm going to avoid anything that even could be perceived as work on the Sabbath to show how wonderful and righteous I am. They thought that for what you do or what you avoid, that you could then earn the favor of God. You know what Jesus said about the Pharisees? He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you clean everything up on the outside. You do all these things you think that are right. And guess what's on the inside? Death. Decay. Stench. Jesus would go on to say, you know what? Pharisees, God was right when he said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Jesus, through all of this and his interactions with the Pharisees, shows us that God's favor and his blessing are for those who trust him, those who are in a loving relationship with him. He says, just following the rules, guys, is not the point. You can do all the fasting, all the Sabbath keeping you want. But if if it's apart from that relationship with your Heavenly Father, loving, obedient relationship, then you're just a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you may look good. On the inside, you're dead. You're just someone who talks a good game about the Lord, but your heart wants nothing to do with Him, He says. I wonder what you and I believe. What are we living out? Maybe you this morning are, are a little deceived, a little confused as to about what Christianity really is to be about. Maybe, maybe you're wearing yourself out trying to keep up with all the perceived mandatory regulations that you are either to do or to avoid. And you're tired. You say, that's what Christianity is about. My goodness. I may not make it. I may die trying, I guess, but I'm sure not going to make it. You're worn out. The interactions that Jesus has here with the Pharisees and later on, he proves that religious acts do not earn God's favor and blessing. If you're going about life that way, thinking that what you do or what you avoid is somehow going to impress God, and you're going to get His favor and His blessing, there's some serious dangers associated with that. The pitfalls of the Pharisees is a good place to start. You you will likely miss the point, personally. You may be like a person who knows all the notes on the piano, but you can't make any music whatsoever. You may know all the rules, and you know all the right steps to take. But if you don't know Jesus, you can't make any music. You may lead others astray, even unintentionally. You may set so many rules up that people try to jump through all the hoops just to be like you and never give them Jesus. You may be believing this morning that an imposition of rules is what people need. That'll fix them. That'll fix our society. As long as it's your rules, I guess, then you'd be happy with that. The need is Jesus. The need is His grace. No danger is pride. Because of what I do or what I don't do, I'm a little better. I'm truly righteous. You're falling in that game? Thinking you've got it together and someone else doesn't, or thinking someone else does and you don't? If you like the Pharisees, you'll argue, argue over minor issues. You'll major in the minors. You'll miss Jesus and then... All these little things you'll take care of. 
Eventually, like the Pharisees, you'll face the anger and the judgment of God. You'll have a false sense of security to a large degree, counting on all the things apart from Jesus to be what pleases God. You'll live in spiritual blindness, not really knowing you're wandering around in the dark. You'll probably live a life of judgmentalism. Unfortunately, if you are counting on religious acts to be what gets you to God, then you'll be like the Pharisees, and when someone else messes up, you'll pop up out of the grain field and say, ah, gotcha, told you. Religious acts do not, do not earn the favor of blessing God. Secondly, rules must follow and flow out of relationship. Rules must follow and flow out of relationship. Rules without relationship produce some incredibly disastrous results. The Sabbath during these days became an impossible burden for people to carry. No one but the Pharisees really could keep up with all the regulations, and some people began to feel the weight. If you're a person here this morning who says, I'm feeling the weight of all the rules that I think I have to follow all the time in order for God to be okay with me, some in here will give up. Can you do it? I give up. I don't want you to happen. There's some that are not here today. Some that used to be faithful, it seems, have given up. Because of the crushing burden of all the rules imposed on them in their own minds or by others or by the church or whatever. Some will become depressed. Some are here this morning, there's no joy in your life whatsoever. You come to church because you figure, I've got to go to church, or God's a little bit upset with me, put my time in, and then I'll move on. And for you, Christianity, church life has no joy whatsoever. You're here, but you're a shell of the person that God wants you to be. Some will keep trying, but just go through the motions. And you're not depressed about it anymore. You just kind of, maybe that'll work. I'll give it a shot. Go through the motions. I'll show up. I'll come and I'll give a little money and sing a song or two and listen like I thought for a while. Some will rebel. Maybe you've seen that. Some, if they perceive that, that it's all just about rules, about no relationship whatsoever, some are going to buck that system. You've probably seen that mostly played out, at least, in a tangible example in the lives of young people whose homes were all about rules, who had no relationship, really loving relationship with their parents for one reason or another. And as a result, they get to a point where they say, I don't want what you're selling anymore. You see that a lot. Rules follow relationships. When they do that, they bring great joy. They bring great meaning. They bring great desire to continue to follow those guidelines. But when it's reversed, when there's rules and then maybe a relationship, it's chaos. When the rules flow out of and follow the relationship, Jesus shows us, look, they'll fast one day, but only after they've been with me. They'll, they'll keep the Sabbath, but they're going to be more concerned about the important things. Jesus didn't say fasting was wrong. Jesus didn't say keeping the Sabbath was wrong. What he said was the grooms here enjoy my presence. When he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, listen to me on how you should live it out, he says. Relationship throughout the Scripture has always come before the rules. You realize in the Old Testament... 
that God led the Israelites out of Egypt and then gave them the law. He says, you're my people, and because I love you, I'll show you now how to live in relationship with me, he says. The law didn't come beforehand. He didn't give them the law and say, when you follow all this stuff, give me a call, I'll come back and we'll get you out of slavery. He said, no, 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 I'm getting you out of slavery, and now that you're out of slavery and we're in a loving relationship, let me tell you what I want from you. Let me tell you how you can respond to my grace and my mercy. And that pattern continues in the New Testament. Obedience is always expected after one enters into a relationship with Jesus. Rules must follow and flow out of relationship. And when they do, they're beneficial. They're a blessing. He says the Sabbath was made for man. It's to be good. But when you get it backwards, it's crushing. Rules must follow and flow out of relationship. And thirdly, principles are universal. Applications are personal. Principles are universal. Applications are personal. The question is posed to Jesus, why are you breaking the rules? In truth, Jesus never broke a single rule that God had set down. He broke a lot of rules that man established, and he did it on purpose, and he did it to provoke, and he did it to stir it up. Trust me, you read the scripture, this stuff isn't in there by accident. Jesus knew those guys were there, and he was a rule breaker, Jesus was, but not God's rules. He broke our rules, and we had set up and said, oh, no, you can't do that. Why not? I still love the Lord, and I'm honoring God and everything I'm doing. In truth, Jesus never broke a single rule of God. In fact, what he did was he showed them what they really meant. He said, you guys have got it all backwards. Let me show you what fasting is to be about. Let me show you what the Sabbath is to be about. In fasting, the principle is that you are dependent upon God. Why should you fast? Well, you should fast on occasion to remind yourself that I am dependent upon God and nothing will control me. Nothing is more important, not even food, than God himself. That's the principle. The application for the Pharisees was to make it uh, mandatory on certain days. You will fast on this day and this day. Why? Because we said so. You should fast, so you're going to do it on this day and this day. For Jesus, the principle was fasting is absolutely permissible and it is beneficial, but only when it's led by the Holy Spirit. Only when it's led by the Holy Spirit. Not for manipulation of God, not for impressing people. You want to be a person who fasts? Absolutely. Don't come to me, though, and say, when should I fast? But I'll tell you, when the Holy Spirit tells you to fast, you go right ahead. How am I supposed to know? I don't know. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to try to tell you when you should do those things. The Sabbath, the principle is keep it holy by not working. That's a commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. For the Pharisees, they would say, do all you can and whatever we tell you so that you don't mess up and break the Sabbath. You do all you can to avoid messing up, and then you do everything we tell you because we know, and we'll keep you from messing up. Now, for Jesus, he says Sabbath is made for the man. What's he telling us? He said, you want to follow the right application on the principle of keeping the Sabbath holy by not working. Jesus, for him, the application is ensure that the Sabbath brings refreshing to your body, to your spirit. 
It's to be a day, one day a week, of spiritual and physical renewal. That's what the Sabbath is for. It's to be a blessing for worship, for rest, for remembering what God has done, for remembering our dependence upon Him, for taming the idolatry that comes with workaholism and making money, for ceasing from ordinary work, maybe to do good in a different way. As we'll see next week, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees then plot his death. He did something good for someone. What are they worried about? Their own application. Jesus says, you're missing the point. The Sabbath is to build up the body, to build up the mind, to build up the spirit, to fellowship with other believers. Be careful to distinguish between what is a principle and what is a personal application. Be very, very careful. There's a lot of heresy, a lot of pharisaicalism in application. There's a lot of godliness in principles. Listen to the Holy Spirit on the applications. The Scripture will give you the principles, but be very, very, very careful. That doesn't mean you live in the abstract, and, well, I haven't figured out how to apply it yet. No, that just means be very careful. The Pharisees missed the point. They thought the Sabbath was a chore. Jesus says, no, no, it's a gift. I want to leave you with this particular principle, truth that can guide your life. All those things simply set up the main point. We gave it to you backwards today. I know that messed some of you up, but it's Jesus Christ, a rule breaker is the title of the sermon. I broke the rules today. All right? Okay with that? Good. I'm going to give you the main point last. This is called an inductive sermon instead of deductive. All right? Starting with the smaller points, I'm just setting you up here, right? in case some of you are freaking out now. He's going to main point to Griff. He's not done yet. It's okay. The message of Jesus is not about rules. It's about grace and relationship. The message of Jesus is not about rules. From, from beginning to end, the message is the same. Jesus never told anyone, listen to this, never told anyone to reform themselves before following him. Never. And that's the problem the Pharisees had with him. Because they wouldn't receive anyone as a follower until they started following all the rules first. Jesus said, just follow me, I'll clean you up, and then we'll take care of the rest of it later on. He called Levi, a tax collector, to be his disciple. You think Levi was perfectly clean and righteous before Jesus called him? Absolutely not. Jesus goes and he visits and he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. Do you think any of those guys had cleaned themselves up real good? No. Jesus said, follow me, I'll take care of the rest. You trust me, you love me, submit to me, he says. I think most Christians are confused about the core of Jesus' message. We look at it, we, we believe that somehow we, we must think and operate as if, well, if you know certain things or know a lot of certain things, then maybe you'll be okay with God. Or if you do these things, avoid these things, then you'll have God's favor. We often view Christianity as a checklist, as some moral code of do's and don'ts, or some system of beliefs that you just, well, okay, I think that's true or some compartment of our lives that says, well, this is over here, and I'll move on to my work and my family. Feeling it is a list of rules, not through the lens of grace and relationship. But rules cannot satisfy your soul. Rules cannot satisfy your soul. They'll leave you empty. If that's your only goal is to follow all the rules in life, they'll leave you empty. They'll leave you confused, dry, overwhelmed, 
deceived and very tired. It's not the life that Jesus has called you to. Rules without relationship with Jesus are absolutely pointless and misleading. So it's not about rules. It's about grace and relationship. Grace, Jesus doing for me what I cannot do for myself. He kept the law perfectly. I stumble over it all the time. I'm imperfect, so Jesus was perfect on my behalf. He paid for it. He removed my sin and gave me instead His righteousness, which I didn't deserve and certainly didn't earn. He pleased God the Father on my behalf. Jesus is the only human that has ever lived who could please God. None of us can. All have fallen short, the Bible says. Jesus alone can please God. If you're not found in Him, His life covering and enveloping yours, you will not ever, for all eternity, please God the Father. Only in Jesus Christ can God be pleased. And praise God that that's the only way He can be pleased because the rest of us have no chance apart from Jesus Christ. He's it. It's a great blessing that Jesus is the only one. We're found in Him as believers in Jesus. Now we, through Him, can please God. He gave us, through His grace, a free gift of salvation. We don't have to earn it. We simply receive by faith. He continues to forgive and to cleanse. You realize, Christian, that you weren't just saved and forgiven at the moment of conversion when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but He continues to forgive. Even the sins you've committed since you've been a Christian, God continues to forgive. It's about grace and it's about relationship. You realize how often the Bible uses relational terms to describe God and, and us? Sheep and shepherd. Psalm 23, what the Lord is my shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. The sheep were to follow the shepherd. What does that mean? He'll show you. He'll lead you beside quiet waters and green pastures. He'll restore your soul. He's good. He's the good shepherd. The Bible uses terminology of father and children. A loving, perfect, caring, absolutely flawless father. So you can trust him. Because he loves you. The Bible uses terminology of a groom and a bride. In the Old Testament, God is pictured as the husband to Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus pictured as the husband to his bride, the church, those who believe in him. As that groom, he's always faithful. He never strays. He never wonders. He never has an affair. He's always faithful. His love always endures and continues. He's always pursuing us. And so our response is just to love him back. We love because he first loved us. Just love him back. The Bible also pictures our relationship with God as one of the king and subjects. And you say, hold on. We live in a democracy. Talking to me about a kingdom. This is a democracy. Get America out of your brain for just a second. Think in spiritual terms of a king who is absolutely perfect in every decision he makes, who is absolutely loving toward his citizens, who wants only the best for them. Not a king that's oppressive that we might see in history, and part of the reason why we have a democracy here in America. Not that kind of king, but a king who's benevolent and compassionate and wise, who's Lord of all, who's in control, and who is good. And in that relationship, we just submit to him. <laughs> Absolutely. Have your way. 
He enjoyed living in the kingdom of that kind of king. Relationship is pictured in the New Testament to provide all that we need, could ever desire. Jesus says he promises to be living water, the bread of life, permanent nourishment for our souls. He is, he says, the light of the world. He gives us constant guidance. He gives us unconditional love, eternal life, and fruit, even in this life, that wells up inside of us and spills over positive and godly elements in our lives. It's not about rules. It's about grace and relationship. I wonder, because it begs the question, what version of Christianity are you living? It's not about rules. It's about grace and relationship. What version of Christianity are you living? Are you trying to do all the religious acts that you can and hope that you'll just earn God's favor and He'll be okay with you? Are you trying to put rules before a loving relationship with Jesus Christ? This isn't a license to go and sin and do whatever you want to do. That's not the point of this sermon. Paul would say, that's crazy. We shouldn't just go on sinning because there's grace. But we've got to put the grace in the relationship first and then in response be obedient. I wonder which version of Christianity is present in your home. I wonder... Do your children feel like they have to earn your love? Or what they do, what they avoid? I wonder, do you lead with rules and guidelines? Or, or do those things flow out of a loving relationship that you have in your home with your spouse and children? I wonder, is the spirit or the letter of the law more important to you? I wonder, is there grace in relationship, not just rules, penalties? The kids are going to rebel when it's all rules in a relationship. They're going to give up. They may go through the motions, but they won't have parts. I wonder which version of Christianity is present in your public life. The people receive grace and love from you or just a rigid lifestyle. Do you interact with those people who need Jesus, or do you, like the Pharisees, just try to avoid them so you're not contaminated? Some tough questions. I wonder if someone talks to you, do they understand that Christianity is, is not based on what you do or what you avoid, but on who you know and who you're loved by, Jesus Christ? they see the difference? I wonder, finally, what version of Christianity is our church living by? Are we, are we doing religious activities just in hopes that we're pleasing God? Are we truly are we truly worshiping Him? Jesus would say, in spirit and in truth. Are we leading with rules or with relationships and grace? I wonder if people here feel that they, there are things they must do, people they must know, a certain way they must act before they feel accepted and welcomed. My prayer is that we not be like the Pharisees in any way, not a single one of us. That we not be like the Pharisees, but instead we live out biblical principles just as Jesus did. Not, not suffocating people with our own man-made rules. It's time to be set free today. And maybe your response would be just like Rapunzel at the beginning of the sermon. And you finally realize you have been so trapped by everything that has deceived you that you say, Lord, set me free. 
said, I just want to live in a loving relationship with you. This isn't a license, as I said, to go and sin and do whatever you want to do. It's a license to be loved in the perfect way by Jesus Christ and to reciprocate that love. We need, need to repent this morning for just living by the rules and not in a loving relationship with Jesus. Maybe now you understand what it means to be a Christian. You say, that's what I want. That's what I want. I see how that satisfies my soul. I want to come to Jesus this morning. Maybe you'd like to come this morning and just pray for our church. The Lord, please keep us about grace and relationships, not just about man-made rules and regulations. Maybe today you just follow the Lord in obedience. Maybe He's called you to join this church or to be baptized to show a picture of what Jesus has done for you. How do you need to respond this morning? Is it through repentance, through faith, through humbling yourself? In just a moment, I'll be standing down here. You're certainly welcome to come and pray and spend a few moments praying for yourself, your family, our church. Be happy to talk with you and pray with you. Don't leave here today still operating under the same old system. New wine requires fresh wine skins. Jesus has come. He is alive. He's called us into a loving relationship with grace with Him. Then and only then will the rules and regulations, will the guidelines for life have any meaning and any joy? And they're backwards. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we thank you for breaking the rules of man, but for fulfilling the law of God. Thank you for loving us. We thank you for your grace and the offer of relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you'd set us free as individuals, as a church. Make our lives different, our homes different, our public witness different. Make our church different from when we came this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.